This episode of Film Jive is brought to you by Audible.com, the world's largest selection of premium audiobooks and spoken word content with over 150,000 titles to choose from. To sign up for your free 30-day trial, please visit audibletrial.com slash filmjive. Hello and welcome to the Film Jive Podcast. We're recording this episode on October 12th, 2014. My name is Zach. And I'm uh, Andy. This is episode number 81, where we are looking at William Castle's 1961 horror film, Mr. Sardonicus, released by Columbia Pictures and starring Ronald Lewis, Guy Rolfe, and Audrey Dalton. Andy, would you please read the plot synopsis? Desperate to retrieve a winning lottery ticket buried with his recently deceased father, Greedy farmer, Merrick, unearths his father's corpse and is rewarded with an enormous jackpot accompanied by a tragic curse. Merrick's face has frozen permanently into a hideous grin, making it impossible for him to speak. Years later, now known as Baron Sardonicus, he turns to a respected neosurgeon and his wife's former lover to help cure his physical deformity. Were you confused why this movie wasn't called Baron Sardonicus? Yeah, I guess a little bit. He's never referred to, referred as, to as Mr. Yeah, I know. I, I never, I didn't get that. I was, I was waiting for someone to call him Mr. <laughs> I'm like, what is this? <laughs> other, than, other than that glaring error, error, what did you think of the film? Well, can I ask you something real quick? Uh, did this film help at all in your research of Langston Hughes' sexuality? <laughs> yes, it did. No. <laughs> Unfortunately, it didn't. I mean, no. Crow kind of like helped a little bit, but not really. Mm. Well, we should mention that uh, this was an adaptation of the Sardonicus novella written by Ray Russell. Who also wrote the script. Yeah. Originally appeared in Playboy, too, which is probably where William Castle saw it. William Castle always did say, I prefer the articles in Playboy. (laughs) (laughs) The other two stories, one was called Sagittarius and Sanguinarius was the other one. So this guy had a real hard on for... S's. Yeah. They're all gothic horror stories, which from what I read uh, is kind of interesting. I guess gothic horror in literature at this point was kind of extinct in the early 60s. So this book in particular was really highly regarded because it honored the conventions of classic gothic horror. Okay. And like you said, he adapted this screenplay, which I thought was kind of curious because I would argue that the narrative in this film feels like one that would better translate on a page versus the screen because, and I haven't read the book, but I felt like the shock moments here would be more effective in the form of language than compared to visuals. I agree. I agree with you. I think William Castle does what he can and he very classically frames those gags, but they all felt kind of perfunctory. Whereas I think when I think about movies like House on Haunted Hill or The Tingler, there is imagery in those movies that feels very unnerving and disconcerted. And there's an excitement in those moments that I didn't feel was present at all in this. Yeah, I agree that this film was a lot uh, less um, 
I don't want to say necessarily zany, but I think when he said exciting is, is good. It, it was less exciting than the other William Castle films I've seen. And also, I completely agree with you that this probably read better in that um, I feel the ending, you know, the punishment pull, what happens after the punishment pull yeah. is a lot more literary than visual. Mm-hmm. And I think it would have, it probably read as, as a great ironic ending versus it just kind of almost, there was almost a moment of like, for me, like, hmm, is that it really? Well, it is a very classic William Castle ending though, in the sense that I think all the films I've seen, the villains in his movies always get their comeuppance right, yeah. in the end. He's always punishing them for what they've done throughout the rest of the film. But I do agree that it plays a little weird. Like that whole scene too, just <laughs> I love that his first decision after healing his face is that he's going to eat this copious amount of food. Like yeah, but the spread on that been, table. He's never been able to eat. He has been able to eat for, you know, decades. Yeah, all I know. If, have the, 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 the most liquefied of, of, of stews and porridges. I just think it's interesting that that's what they decided to immediately stage, you know, after this occurs was, you know, who cooked all that food? I'm assuming Kroll. He can do, like he said. (laughs) Kroll can do everything. (laughs) What what he's asked to do, he can do. Yeah. (laughs) Well, that, that brings me, that is my favorite line in the whole movie. I know we're like jumping all over the place, but I love when he says, when he says to him, you know, don't cut her face, and he's like, well, my master says, Kroll, do this thing? I do the thing. Yeah. It, sound, it was so funny to me because I actually think there are moments in the dialogue throughout the movie where they sound like, you know, gothic Victorian characters merge with, like, Scorsese heavies from, like, <laughs> 1970s New York. Suddenly, at the end of their sentences, like, transform into, like, Brooklyn gangsters. Like, there's a part where... He reveals that he's been keeping the father's corpse in that room. Yeah. And his ultimatum with Dr. Cargrave is, if you don't do this, I'm going to lock Maude in this room all night with the dead guy. (laughs) (laughs) It's just funny how their sentences sort of transform at certain points, but... Yeah. I will say, would you not agree that Kroll is the most interesting character? In oh, he was awesome. He, yeah. I thought uh, the guy that played him, Oscar Homolka, I don't know if I said his name right. I thought he was great. Oscar-nominated actor, too. It should have been for should have been for this movie. Yeah. I thought he was fantastic in this film. Uh, he steals the movie, really. Really, for me, he's the only three-dimensional character in the entire piece. Like, you know, there are things about him that you learn throughout the whole movie. He's definitely accomplice, an accomplice to all the evil, but the actor who plays him is able to convey a lot of hesitation, mm-hmm. and he's really the only character that we end up empathizing with when we learn why he's really still there. Right, yeah. And I also think William Castle, like, clearly, the way he photographs Crawl is just with this insane amount of adoration. I, I think secretly William Castle wanted to make a movie entirely focused on Crawl. Which would have been called Crawl. <laughs> which would have been a problem for a later film called Crawl. Yeah, a fantasy movie, which I actually think... I guess it would have been called Sardonicus, that film. But I wonder if the Peter Yates movie is an actual autobiography of the Crawl character. <laughs> Everything that ha- happened to him up to meeting Sardonicus. I'm curious to watch to watch it now after seeing Mr. Sardonicus, if there's a, a subtext. If it's... Probably. They probably put in like little hints to what will happen later. 
Like, there's probably a character that goes, I've got to, I can't wipe the smile off my face or something <laughs> like that, you know? Or, you know, he's just like, crawl, do this thing, I do my thing. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. There's probably a big thing about hypodermic needles. I will say that I did enjoy at least watching this movie, particularly as like an entry in medical horror. Mm-hmm. I met, I know in the plot synopsis it says that the doctor's a neosurgeon, but I was actually pleasantly surprised that he was Ronald more like Lewis, a masseuse. Yeah, wasn't a surgeon, which I guess I just assumed that was where the film would go, given yeah. the plot that I was mm-hmm. aware of. I think with all of William Castle's movies, what I generally find pleasure about, uh, pleasurable about them is how jubilant they are in their display of the grotesque. Like, his films don't take themselves too seriously. No, they don't. <laughs> and I actually think he's one of the best filmmakers to ever blend, like, a more morbid sense of humor with classic horror. And I think there is plenty of, of that here. It's I, I just think, in general, it's hard not to enjoy his movies and appreciate them on some level. They are definitive in terms of a certain sensibility within that genre. But it, it did feel kind of minor to me in comparison. And I haven't seen all of his films. Yeah, uh, I haven't either, but... Most of what I've seen is predates this movie. And this is kind of one of the the last gimmick films that he made it's arguably the worst gimmick that I've oh seen. yeah i agree i've seen the old dark house which is a couple years after this and this is better than the old dark house remake i it definitely feels like a cash-in to like what hammer's doing at this time and yeah there yeah i do agree with you was roger corman roger corman was making poe films by now right yeah, i think he started doing them in 1960 so this is 61 yeah it, it, it seems like he's he's throwing his hat into the ring there. And I would say that I don't think he, or, or it's not a good thing to compare it to those movies. I think it has some memorable moments and some interesting visual ideas, but they're a little too far, few and far between the, the what I find strange about watching this too, is it felt very much like an extended episode of like Alfred Hitchcock presents or the <laughs> twilight zone, which isn't necessarily a negative criticism but i didn't find it to be all that atmospheric or even like very cinematic there are moments that i really responded to the carriage ride with the oversized tree branches uh we mentioned his him slurping his supper i thought that was that was a good good. scene yeah the leech torture stuff is all great well when you had the um the the maid strung up by your thumbs well that is yeah and, and the way that that's shadow. photographed is But that reminded me of the beautiful. Black Cat, the Edgar Ulmer movie. Yeah. When uh, Karloff is strung up by Lugosi towards the end. I mean, there's though. I mean, those moments, they're kind of, they do the heavy lifting in terms of building the, the mystery, but I didn't feel like it just was not evocatively photographed in a way that ever sort of is able to break the awareness of the fact that they're filming on a soundstage. Yeah. Which is what I find more common in television from this era than films. And I, and I know he's working on a restricted budget, but it just wasn't visually inspired in ways that moments in his other films, too. I mean, I, I was just thinking about the shocks in House on Haunted Hill or even the appearance of Red in The Tingler. The thing, yeah. Just being very jarring moments. And I guess I was just expecting something that was a bit more stylized. 
I mean, coming after Hom. This is his film after Homicidal. I think it's a disappointment coming after that, especially because Homicidal is kind of like the titillating aspect of you know the cross dressing and stuff involved. Mm-hmm. That this one did seem more reserved, and like you said earlier, less exciting. I enjoyed the film, but it definitely wasn't great. And I actually, to be honest with you, I, I think <laughs> outside of uh, Kroll, the best character is William Castle. Yeah. At the beginning. I almost wanted to see a, an entire movie with him. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm actually having a hard I'm, I'm, I'm having a hard time thinking of negatives to say about it, but I'm also having a hard time thinking of like really positive things to say. Well, about it. it's kind of it's one of these movies that you watch that you don't really want to pick on that poorly, like because I will say this might sound strange, but I think actually of all the films we've discussed this year. This was the one that I wished I had seen in the theater most than anything else. Mm -hmm. And that's because I do think with William Castle pictures, something is lost when you are viewing them within the, when you're not viewing them within the context of a packed like wall to wall theater. Yeah, I agree. And you know, and um, to further that with the punishment poll, Mm -hmm. whereas at home watching it by yourself, the punishment poll is lame. But if you're in a crowded theater full of 12 to 16-year-olds, they're probably going nuts during the punishment <laughs> pool. And it's, you know, they're all probably screaming. They're probably throwing stuff. I mean, it's probably, like I said, it's probably it. That, that's honestly, I, I'd rather watch people watch this film than I think, like, watch this film again. Yeah. A 1961 audience yeah. reacting to well, this would well, be so interesting. Yeah, what would Stephen like more with that, though, is the way that Castle brings about the punishment poll. He is definitely not an impartial judge in this, because he goes on kind of like this like little rant about why he thinks Sardonic should be punished more, cause, and he's just revving up, theoretically would be revving up the audience even more to, <laughs> like, string him up, you know, do whatever to him. That's what's great about William Castle. Like, have you ever read um, Crackpot, The Obsessions of John Waters? No. Okay. I, I've read excerpts of it from it, like on Google Books and stuff, and he dedicates an entire chapter to William Castle. I mean, people that know John Waters, like, he loves William Castle. He might be his favorite filmmaker. I'm not exactly sure, but. Be either him or uh, Herschel Martin Lewis, I think. And he brings up an interesting question regarding, like, showmanship in film and why there hasn't been a revival of that. And making the argument that Castle's approach to distributing a film, marketing a film, making a film, the dedication to making the experience an event is the filmmaker who's most worthy of the term auteur. I mean, I see where he's coming from and that William Castle, I do think is an auteur Mm -hmm. in that sense. I mean, he places himself so much in the movies that they are a part of him almost. I agree with what he's saying and like it's hard to argue against that. Mm-hmm. I think anyone that would argue that would argue against it would be strictly arguing against it because, in their mind, the auteur theory means something other than a William Castle movie. Well, I think I remember in the book he actually kind of juxtaposes William Castle at some point with, you know, asking, "Would John Luke Godard show up to a premiere of Weekend in like a?" wrecked car or would eisenstein show up to a premiere battleship potemkin in a battleship <laughs> you know like i think he did though i think he would show up in battleships 
No, John Waters says no, he wouldn't. I yeah. hate I hate him for that. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, I think as cheap as it is and as obvious as these gimmicks are, I mean, and and clearly doing this today would not entice audiences. They might entice me, but I'm not the type of person that they probably really need to market to. But I do think, I agree, there is some truth in what he's saying, or he's at least attempting to allude to. I mean, in the book, too, he makes gimmick suggestions like refusing to serve concessions during Gandhi. (laughs) So people will starve to death. (laughs) Or every time a Hollywood blockbuster opens, let the audience in for free and then make them pay to get out. Get out. But I think what's admirable about the William Castle gimmicks, some of which I think are actually were good ideas and moderately successful. I I actually, I mean, The Tingler is my definitely my favorite film of his, and every time I watch that film, I just so wish I could have seen that film when the the gimmick approaches where they actually enter the movie theater. Yeah, and then you know I think that's genius. Uh, he was really dedicated to pleasing and ensuring that the audiences were given an experience beyond just watching a movie. And sometimes I wonder with a filmmaker like him, if his films were better films and weren't just regarded as cheap B-movies, but something more critically critically praised and maybe more like uh, more uh, elaborate in their artistry. I guess, uh, if he would have made a greater impact on the future of the theatrical experience in any way. I I don't, I I don't know, but yeah, I don't know either, but I'm going to go with no. And the only reason I'm going with no is I think audiences over time have become more cynical in that they want, want to appear too cool for something as, like silly as this. Yeah, but I even, I just, I think about like the ways that studios try to bring bring people into theaters today. It's like what, it's 3D, Atmos, surround sound. Yeah. Like luxury seating, in theater dining. Yeah. And this all sounds terrible. Like I, yeah, I, mean, I mean, like I don't care about any of those. No, I, I, I think I agree that, you know, people would not go for these gimmicks. Uh, I mean, it's like nobody went for when Robert Rodriguez a few years ago did the smell o vision Oh, yeah. Again, <laughs> I don't think that was successful. But at least like with William Castle, I guess what I admire about it is that he's still thinking from the perspective, I think to some extent, of a filmmaker versus a, an executive mm-hmm. of, a, of, a, of a company. I guess from what I read that the gimmick in Mr. Sardonicus, though, was in some part imposed upon him. They, I guess the studio was really unhappy with how the movie ended. And so Castle's idea was then to concoct the punishment poll, which for anybody listening that doesn't know, basically the concept of the punishment poll is when the movie theater played, or when the movie theater, when the movie played in theaters, each member of the audience gets handed this large white card with a drawing of a hand with a thumb up and a and then it if you turned it around it would be a thumb down basically and so then when he appears on screen after the movie you think it's kind of ended he these cards are actually ballots which you're going to cast to determine 
the resolution of the film. So if you have mercy on him, you'd hold up the cards with the thumb up. If you had no mercy, you'd hold the cards with the the thumbs down. And then he, Cat, William Castle pretends to count the cards and then tally the different endings. And depending upon the verdict, they would play one of the two reels. Now, there's like speculation about whether there was actually even a mercy ending <laughs> shot, which I think is pretty great. <laughs> I, I would love to see the mercy ending and what that would be if it would just simply be like Crawl comes back, tells him what he tells him, which that's another thing. Like the information that the doctor gives Crawl, it's like, what? What the hell is he going to do with that? It just seems like nonsensical anyway. So there's... Yeah, I know. That's even like, when that happened? Well, when, the whole thing, after he cures him and, like, sardonic strikes, be gone on the wall, and he leaves, and that's it. I was I was like, really? That's all? That, that's all there is? He's just going to leave? Yeah. And he takes both of the women with him, and he leaves? <laughs> Sardonicus then re-raced, be gone off the wall, and wrote, let's eat and make letters, and yeah. all started cooking. <laughs> <laughs> but I guess the ending would be that he'd get his mouth open and he'd just annihilate all that food. <laughs> I think, like, he, you know, Curl tells him the stuff and Sardonicus opens his mouth. They each pick up a turkey leg and they, like, ding it like they're cares and, like, ding. Or they wrap each other's arms around and feed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and he goes, Curl, this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. That, I mean, I want to see that movie where Crawl and Sardonicus. <laughs> maybe that's when, he, that's when he's like, from now, he's, he's like, Baron, Baron. He's like, from now on, call me Mr. Sardonicus. Mm-hmm. That would have been that, yeah, that a been great good. ending to the film. Yeah. <laughs> you know, another great scene, though, that we didn't talk about is after he uh, is cured, Sardonicus, and he goes straight out and he walks straight to the one uh, wall and he just rips the wall and there's a mirror under it. That was a great scene, too. Yeah. Well, the. <laughs> Um, sorry, sorry about that. I just, rem- <laughs> I just remember that scene. That was a great scene. Well, they're actually. I really like how they they build to reveal his whole thing with the the no mirrors, the 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 picture frames being empty. Yeah, it's all very classical stuff, and it's all like kind of tropes of horror. But I think it's effective. I was kind of surprised by um, when it did eventually reveal his face like how little you actually end up seeing that in the overall film yeah i mean it's very rare it's obvious because i'm sure that that was a pain in the ass to apply onto that that actor's face and probably save them time but you would think once they reveal that whole thing in the flashback that you would just be seeing it all the time but you really don't. And he Castle's always framing him in a way where his cam his back is always to the camera so that you're not seeing his face. And he has the great no face mask too, that he Did you get an eyes without a face vibe throughout this movie? I guess now that you say it I can I can kinda of see that with like the blank face mask. But even the bringing the dogs to the mansion yeah, that's true, and that's true, that's them. true. Sardonicus needed to have, like, doves fly around him at the end. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I can Yeah, I can see little things like that, yeah. I mean, it's not as, like, poetic as I was... No, no, that. no, definitely not. <laughs> but it just, it was... I don't know, there was just something about even the way that women are treated in this film that's yeah. not that dissimilar. That's to true. Without that's, a face. Yeah, that's true. 
both films came out in 1961, so there's no way that they were inspired by one another. Eyes Without a Face didn't come out in the United States until 1962. Well, well who's to say that uh, Castle didn't fly to France, see the film? Because it actually came, Eyes Without a Face came out in 60 in France. Oh, really? Fly over there. Maybe. And said, now this is a movie. Maybe. He did. He said that. He said, now this, this is, a, is movie. a movie. I love the U.S. title for Eyes Without a Face, though. The Horror Chamber of Dr. Faustus. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I do think Sardonicus and Edith Scobes' character in that film, like they at least share a commonality in the sense that they're very physically dominant presence mm-hmm. in those in those films. I mean, it's, they're completely different reasons, but... I, I think there's there's a there's a double feature there or something. Yeah. Sardonicus and Eyes Without a Face. Yeah, yeah. What did you uh, what did you think of the facial design, like the makeup effect on him? Yeah, well, um, I don't know. It reminded me of the Joker from Batman. Well, I read that. I guess the man who laughs was the okay. Well, and that was yeah. yeah, and that was yeah. the big uh, influence on the Joker as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I enjoyed it. I thought he looked like yeah. a hyena. I don't know why his nose would elongate, though. Did it? Well, I mean, yeah, because of the way that it's set up, his nose has to elongate then to come mm. to go for the. Yeah, from William Castle's biography, he mentions that the the mask had to conform to the contours of Guy Rolf's mouth, but then mm-hmm. it still had to appear as though it was three times the size of his normal mouth, and then make it so he could still speak through it. Mm-hmm. Which was one thing, one good thing about the film is like in the first 45 minutes, I was like asking questions to myself while I was watching it. Like, how can he not speak there, but he can speak here? And then, you know, eventually it explains why that's the case. So there why, were lots of. Why is this movie called Mr. Sardonicus, <laughs> not Baron Sardonicus? Well, maybe they just selling it to an American audience. Like, yeah, I oh, think it's barren. Like, yeah. yeah I think it's a philosopher, sorcerer, stone kind of thing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Have you ever seen a movie that places so much emphasis to making sure that the audience understands the definition of a word? <laughs> ghoul. How many times is ghoul defined? Oh, constant. It's like every scene, somebody's like, you know that's, what a ghoul is, don't that's, you? That's actually the biggest <laughs> The biggest uh, thing about this film that uh, my biggest complaint about this film is actually the, the not only the continuous defining of ghoul, but just the continuous use of ghoul. Um, I usually hate it in a movie or a television show where there's like a word that they really want to hit over the head of the audience and they just can continuously repeat it over and over again. Uh, that's like a pet peeve of mine. And uh, ghoul must be said. You know how they have a like. F word counters for movies like Wolf of Wall Street or Big Lebowski. There should be like a ghoul counter for this film every time that's used. I could just imagine like Castle like in the middle of a scene, an actor does his line reading and then he's like, cut, cut, cut. Where's ghoul? We got to work ghoul in here. Define ghoul. Explain to us what ghoul is one more time. And you could tell he loves the word. Oh, he I says know. it at the beginning. Oh, he was, he was excited. It's a ghoul. It should have just—they should have just named the movie Ghoul. And probably, yeah. Baron or it—it actually has the other thing that it loves repeating is uh, Maud. <laughs> that character oh, name. Maud. Maud. I can't. Just... I, I, 
<laughs> I kept thinking of Maud Adams in the television show Maud. Yeah. Um, Maud's constant repeating of urgent. Yeah. Most urgent. Most urgent. Mo- and then there's even a moment in a later scene where she's at the dinner table with the doctor. And he goes to get up and leave. And she says to him, like, you are right. You are right. You're... <laughs> That's what she says. Uh, she says something about, like, you're right, Robert. You are here for the, because my well-being is most urgent or something. Yeah. And I'm sitting there thinking, you wrote that in your letter, dummy. <laughs> of course he knows that. You told him. Yeah, but when, when they were talking face-to-face earlier, she goes, oh, I don't know why I wrote that down. She did? Yeah, she even says oh, that because he mentioned that, that part. Her. She's like, well, I don't know why I said that. I must have been trying to recall the definition of ghoul. Ghoul, yeah, yeah. I will say that uh, the the Baron, the good Baron, he uh, Maud is a step down from his first wife. I do think that his first wife. Was, oh, really? Yeah, I thought his first wife was. That's the thing too. Is I don't think the movie's very flattering towards the female characters at all. Well, there's only like th- there's three of them. There's the there's Anna, who's the uh, the maid. Well, she's just there to have leeches put on her face and her feet. Man, is she, her facial gesturing is insane. (laughs) Even just when she's talking to him, talking to the doctor in his bedroom, the over-pronounced nature of her eyeballs, like, bulging out of their sockets is insane. She's just doing doing the best she can. (laughs) Oh, no, I I think she's one of the best characters in the movie for it. That's one of the things that I was a little disappointed about was I thought this would, it didn't have as much character as I was anticipating in certain mm-hmm. parts, like a lot of it felt very flat. Yeah. Yeah. Like Maud for somebody that kind of gets is what brings all these characters together. She's not really relevant. And then yeah, she's, she's like just really, noodle. she's used as a device for Sardonicus to use whenever Cargrave refuses to do something. So I was, I was hoping there'd be more scenes between Maud and Sardonicus. Or Crawl and Maud. Yeah, that would have been great. Like they had a little something going on on the side. That should have been uh, how Ashby's follow up to Harold and Maul, <laughs> Crawl and Maul, Maud. <laughs> that would have been good. That, yeah, I would have liked that. But uh, their backstory of their relationship, I wasn't interested in. But I was, I, I wanted, I want always. Initially, I was interested in exploring whether their relationship was always complete hostility and pure oppression on her well i think it i think it i think it was or if there was more dimension to it well she says that her father he kind of like cons her father yeah blackmails her father into marrying him yeah but one scene i wanted to ask you because i was the subtext was completely alluded to me alluded me but could you explain what happens in the basement with the girls like was he raping them i think so because what else would he be doing with them well, that's what I couldn't figure out. That's like the whole scene was very confusing to me because at first I was thinking they're going to do experimentations on him, but that's why would he still be doing experimentations? Now that yeah, Sir Bob is there, so yeah, that's what I'm Sir assuming. Bob. We can assume that the Baron and Maud have never consummated their marriage since she sleeps behind bolted doors all the time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, that's what I'm assuming is that that's what he's doing. It just, I feel like the placement of that scene is a little weird because it comes at a time where it hasn't yet been revealed that his relationship with Maud is as 
bad yes. as it is. Yeah. So we don't know that they're not sleeping together. So it just I didn't understand what what was going I, on there. I also questioned Sir Robert in that seeing those leeches, man, he was he seeing the leeches on the maid, he went full into it, like pulling them off. He heard that girl scream and he didn't do anything. He went to bed. He went, eh, all right. Whatever. Can I can I just say Ronald Lewis is awful <laughs> in this yeah. Which I was surprised by because I I've seen him in um, Hammer Scream of Fear, which is one of my favorite Hammer movies, and he's also in Billy Bud. Um, I don't remember him that well from it, but I like that movie. But I don't know if he's just it's just because he's acting with performers that have meteor roles like Sardonicus and Kroll, but he feels just dispassionate about his character. Like he makes no attempt to make anything that comes out of his mouth seem organic or like a thought he just had at all. It's a very strained performance. And this is a movie that it brings up an interesting topic when I think about like acting today compared to acting of earlier periods in in film in that he plays an eminent physician who specializes in massaging patients. <laughs> yeah, that's another thing just being thrust into that whole thing, I'm just like, what the hell is he doing to that girl's leg? Like, he's no one, not, he's a masseuse. Well, nobody makes an attempt to explain. Like, clearly, it's some kind of muscle. Spa- he's specializes in muscle spasm. He specializes related. in massage and hypodermic needles. And he's got like magical hot towels. <laughs> I was hoping that the big set piece at the end was going to be a wet towel <laughs> fight, like between him, him and like Sardonic. Whipping Sardonic is on the behind. I was like, oh, these wet towels at the beginning. They're setting something up here. This is going to come back later. Um, and just like the fact that the whole, like his whole treatment is massaging his face for like hours on end. It's such a strange. <laughs> we're gonna be like, we're done. There's nothing to do. I <laughs> It's a massage. I tried to give your face a hell of a massage, but I mean, Baron, if you order some like hot rocks or something like that, maybe we could get something going. But right now, I mean, it's <laughs> these hands can only do so much. But it's interesting. To they think should about... have. He should have hired uh, Jennifer uh, uh, Jennifer Love Hewitt to do it, or uh, uh, Jennifer Coolidge character from Seinfeld. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah. But it's interesting to think about because. If this movie were made today, whoever was playing that character, you know, would have spent like six months training on how to be like a doctor and how to emulate those treatments. Whereas when you watch a movie from this period, the actor's just doing what he thinks a a doctor would do in that scene. Like it was most apparent to me here. Like, and I only bring that up because, like I was saying, the entire time I'm watching this film, I'm just like waiting for some kind of explanation, what is he doing? There's no discussion about, like, the Baron isn't like, okay, what's the treatment? Well, yeah, I'm just going to give you a massage. There's no insight into that procedure. It's like, ba- Baron, just... Baron, you've gone to a Veda to get your hair done. I'm sure they've massaged your scalp before. I'm just bringing it down a little bit, just over the mouth area. <laughs> I also think they would have uh, changed uh, Sir Robert to, like, Sir Barbara, and they would have hit someone like, like a Jennifer Lawrence do it, so... would have would have had that kind of bent to it too you know directed by david o russell yeah christian bale would have played mr Mr. sardonic (laughs) you'd have played kroll 
Bradley Cooper. And Mark Wahlberg. <laughs> They're not friends anymore, I don't think. Oh. Bradley Cooper would have been a, a Baron Sardonicus. Yeah. Louis C.K. would have been the drunk friend that comes in and tells him about the lottery. Oh, yeah. Talk about a character. <laughs> I don't know what I was, where I was going with that. But Yeah, I don't either. Jason Schwartzman would have been the maid with the leeches on her face. But he would have played it as a woman. Yeah, exactly. Baron's first wife would have been played by, I don't know, Melissa. Amy Adams, I guess. <laughs> I Melissa Leo, maybe. I don't know. Oh, God. But yeah, I guess Amy Adams makes sense. She's been in multiple David O. Russell movies. What did you think of Guy Rolf as the Baron or as Mr.? I thought he was, uh, I thought he was good. I thought he cut an imposing figure because of how tall he was. I thought that really stuck out. It's like, wow. It's too bad that his dialogue is trash. (laughs) It's just utter garbage. Like, it's terrible. I don't know if it was just the design of the mask. Or, or legitimately his performance, but I did think he was very successful in conveying emotion mm-hmm. without being able to use his face, like, which is the same thing that Edith Scobe does in Eyes Without a Face. That's, yeah. um, well, but, I, I mean, think... it, it helps that the most, the majority of this film, he's just pissed off or arrogant, but yeah, yeah. Uh, there is sort of like a sadistic joy that I do think kind of shines through. So I don't know. I was impressed by that, but. And he was able to bring that that intensity back to be uh, Tolan in the three, uh, not the three, but in the uh, the, the Puppet Master, Master series for uh, Full Moon Entertainment. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. One one thing I will mention <laughs> is so. he in the Doll Man versus uh, <laughs> Puppet Master movies? Or I don't know if the if if it's just because it's a uh, of the William Castle movies previous to this or the Gothic setting, but the entire time I was watching this i couldn't help but think that that sardonis sardonicus character was perfectly suited for vincent price mm-hmm. yeah i agree especially because it's for the most part a performance that it's all dictated by physicality and the voice, voice of yeah. the character and i think guy rolf is fine but during that flashback sequence and i don't know that it's entirely his fault but i don't i don't empathize with anything that happens to him <laughs> in that scene at all. Like, I just, I don't care. Well, he's also like 50 when it happens. In that <laughs> that like you've, you've lived life. Like, come on. <laughs> your dad, your dad was like 95, you know, like <laughs> it, he be was a problem. T- it was time for him to go. And your wife's just a meanie, <laughs> but it, I feel like if you give that, that stuff to a performer like Vincent price, whether it's in the script or not, he would bring something to that just a better sense of empathy for his character. I also think that a problem, because I, when I was watching the saver was thinking, oh, that was a weird, is that uh, his dad's the one that puts it back in his uh, pocket, his coat pocket. Yeah. I think it would have been better if the wife put it in there. So it's her fault that he has to, and she, since she makes him dig him up, that it I, all I, goes back to her. I think that would have been better. I The interesting thing about the dad, the actor that plays the dad, He's younger than the guy that played Sardonicus? <laughs> well, he's in The Magnificent Seven. Yeah. And he plays an elderly, I believe they're in Mexico in that film, Mexican character. Yeah. And I always believed that he was actually Mexican. So when I saw this film and I'm like, you were I w- you've duped me for like 15 years of my life. <laughs> 
he's, I that, was con- he's that good. <laughs> I know. I was the fact convinced. That his name was Vladimir. Didn't... <laughs> was that the actor's name? Yeah, his name's like Vladimir Skoloff or something. Oh, wow. I never really looked it up. I just assumed, like, I was like... Oh, that guy's Mexican. Yeah, because he, he, he sold it to me pretty well when I was eight. The Vladimir uh, family from uh, Mexico. Uh, one thing I did like... Mm-hmm. I thought it was a very stuffy movie. Uh, everything does feel very, like, stale and uh, musty. Even the food at the end, I thought, looked kind of <clears> gross. <laughs> um but they're, they're just, I don't know. There's something about the whole setting that just feels like everything's kind of like in ruins. I don't know. I, so that's good. Good, good on yeah. you, William Castle. I don't know. But it's just, it feels like a very episodic movie. Yeah. In the sense that, um, it's structure. And this is really, was really weird for me. Apart from the overarching conflict, there's always these scenes that introduce like, smaller conflicts and then immediately in the next scene conflicts over <laughs> you know well, yeah like it's a 30 like, minute like a hey you got show. leeches leeches on your face leeches are off no more leeches that's not a good example of what i'm talking about <laughs> but there were just lots of things where it was just like oh that was nothing basically every scene involving mod which i have to say this is where I also think not seeing it in a theater is a hindrance to your overall enjoyment. That entire scene where he throws Maud into that room for no real reason mm-hmm. other than because he's a masochist. Yeah, I was curious. Was he thinking that her face would get like his or something? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I, but the moment of complete dark, darkness, that seems like a, a scene that is completely designed for a theater. Yeah, yeah. So that you know it can it can bring a moment where the where every it, theater's completely black and everybody's freaking out. Watching it on your home at home on your television on Saturday afternoon, it doesn't really do much. Her acting's terrible in that scene too. Yeah. Maud, Maud, it's a ghoul. It's a ghoul. <laughs> it's a goddamn ghoul, Maud. Do I need do I need to explain to you what a ghoul is again? And then he he pops open that little hatch that he's got on the. On yeah, the I like that. It would have been cool if if William Castle was in the room with her, you know, some kind of like really meta moment where he like bumps into her and he's like, "Oh, sorry." You know? He wants to use the good. he wants to use the payphone. Yeah. So this guy, this uh, the guy that played the dad, Henry, he's had a hell of a career when you look at oh, yeah? all the movies. Oh yeah, he's been a lot of stuff. I'm being kind of serious here. What else? Any big notable? Well, let's let's take a look. Uh, the Life of Emil Zola. He was in that. That was okay. a Best Picture winner. He was in um, 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 Road to Morocco. The Bob Hope. Bing Crosby. Bing Crosby. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was in Scarlet Street. That's a great movie. Cloak and Dagger. Baron of Arizona. Speaking of Vincent Price. He was in uh, While the City Sleeps. Another great uh, film noir. I was a teenage werewolf. No, not up to that quality of the others still did he play the teenager yes he did no no he didn't magnificent seven like we, like we already mentioned and uh he was also in a movie i'm just going to bring up this title i don't know what this is but you won't you won't you won't have any movies with this title anymore unfortunately which the amazing dr clitterhouse 
<laughs> he doesn't play Dr. Clitterhouse. No. Fortunately. <laughs> I guess he might still have that, but it's probably like a, the, 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 the triple X variety, I guess. Edward G. Robinson is actually Dr. Clitterhouse. Orgy G. Robinson? Yes. Humphrey Bogart's in the movie. He has Rock's Valentine. I've never heard of this film. This is a this has got to go on the schedule next yeah. year. Yeah. Doctor Clitterhouse, a black comedy about a brilliant Park Avenue doctor who becomes a criminal in order to do research into the criminal mind. Hmm. Amazing, Doctor Clitterhouse. Do you think what a, it, what a name. it delivers on any of the titillating probably suggestions of the title? Would, I'd say so. <laughs> Edward G. Roberts is like, now you're gonna find out why they call me a Clitterhouse. <laughs> Clitterhouse, see? Oh, Humphrey, guess what Humphrey Bogart used to call the movie? The Amazing Dr. Clitoris. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, that's in the trivia section of INTV. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. That makes me love Humphrey Bogart guess he didn't like a lot the movie. more now. I guess he didn't like the movie. It's based on a play, and all the characters' names were changed from the play. Why did they go with Clitterhouse? <laughs> I, I bet Eddie demanded that one. Ralph Richardson plays uh, played the role successfully in London. We're going to change the name of the main character. What do you want to call it? I like Clitoris. <laughs> All right. <laughs> That's just a, Lord Bond's in the movie. He plays a guy named Tug. He's, oh, he, I've always wanted my house to be full of Clitoris. <laughs> so let's, let's make my name Clitter House. <laughs> I wish William Castle directed the movie. Oh, yeah. Well, that's a shame. Um. So how many jive turkeys? Uh, I'm going to give it... Three and a half. Uh, it's probably a little little more than it should, but I enjoyed it. I had a good time with it. There were definitely problems, but I could always see myself revisiting it for, you know, a lazy afternoon. And you got to watch this on Blu-ray, right? Yes, I did. Yeah, I did. How's it look? You know, um, it looked pretty good, you know. I mean, it was a Mill Creek release, so <laughs> it won't be fantastic. It's not like this was ha- handled by, uh, like, Criterion or something, but... uh. Well, yeah, it's a double feature disc. Right? Yeah, with Brotherhood with the... of Satan. I don't understand why they picked that. Yeah, it seems a little little strange. They're not very thematic, they're no, not thematically they, why linked. Yeah, why, why didn't they pick another William Castle movie? Uh, I'll give it three out of five jive turkeys. Okay. Two of those jive turkeys, I think, are just because of Crawl, to be honest. I can't <laughs> overstate how awesome Crawl is. Yeah, he was a good character. Good haircut, too. I thought he might whip out his glaive. <laughs> at some point but that's for the peter yates movie <laughs> yeah. which ironically enough we're talking about in a couple months so okay crawl fever has struck <laughs> film jive after that it's Clitterhouse fever andy what are we going to be looking at next episode the next episode of film jive we'll be looking at Warner Herzog's 1979 reimagining of F.W. Murnau's silent German masterpiece Nosferatu with Nosferatu the Vampire. Or, under its original German title, Nosferatu, Phantom of the Night. I know in some places it was called Nosferatu the Phantom Menace. Really? <laughs> no. Oh. <laughs> it was called Nosferatu Attack of the Clones. Now, we don't have to like review it on the show, but would you like me, because I think I have it somewhere, do you want me to shoot you over Nosferatu in Venice, the quasi-sequel to the film? Sure. I didn't know there was one. Yeah, with Klaus Kinski. He refused to wear the makeup. <laughs> so he just likes, like, he just looks like Klaus Kinski. God bless him. Yeah, it says, however, the actor refused to shave his head and don his makeup. So in the film, Kinski sports long blonde hair. 
I and from what I understand, and I, I could be wrong. This could be wrong, but from what I understand, something I read, where he actually showed up to set and they hid everything, like, "Oh, you're gonna get put your makeup on," and he refused to do it. And so they just let him go. You can hear Andy on the Stephen Andy Meet Batman podcast and follow him on Letterboxd, where I can be found as well. Film Jive can be reached at filmjive.wordpress.com, Facebook, Stitcher Radio, and iTunes. Please send all your thoughts and feedback to filmjive at gmail.com. Any horror movie-related emails you want to send us, please do, and we'll read them on the next episode. Otherwise, thank you for listening to the Film Jive podcast. Please tune in next episode, and until next time, keep on jiving.